0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Aaron Hochwimmer in Auckland, New Zealand. The History of England from the Accession of James II by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Book 1 Chapter two part four had the administration been faultless, the enthusiasm with which the return of the king and the termination of the military tyranny had been hailed could not have been permanent, for it is the law of our nature that such fits of excitement shall always be followed by remissions. The manner in which the court abused its victory made the remission speedy and complete. Every moderate man was shocked by the insolence, cruelty, and perfidy with which the nonconformists were treated. The penal laws had effectually purged the oppressed party of those insincere members whose vices had disgraced it, and had made it again an honest and pious body of men. The puritan, a conqueror, a ruler, a persecutor, a sequestrator, had been detested. The Puritan, betrayed and evil entreated, deserted by all the time service who, in his prosperity, had claimed brotherhood with him, hunted from his home, forbidden under severe penalties to pray or receive the sacrament according to his conscience, yet still firm in his resolution to obey God rather than man, was, in spite of some unpleasing recollections, an object of pity and respect to well-constituted minds these feelings became stronger when it was noised abroad that the court was not disposed to treat papists with the same rigour which had been shown to presbyterians a vague suspicion that the king and the duke were not sincere protestants sprang up and gathered strength many persons to who had been disgusted by the austerity and hypocrisy of the saints of the commonwealth began to be still more disgusted by the open profligacy of the court and of the cavaliers, and were disposed to doubt whether the sullen preciseness of, praise God, barebone, might not be preferable to the outrageous profaneness and licentiousness of the Buckinghams and Sedleys. Even immoral men, who were not utterly destitute of sense and public spirit, complained that the government treated the most serious matters as trifles, and made trifles its serious business. A king might be pardoned for amusing his leisure with wine, wit, and beauty, but it was intolerable that he should sink into a mere lounger and voluptuary, that the gravest affairs of state should be neglected, and that the public service should be starved and the finances deranged in order that harlots and parasites might grow rich. A large body of royalists joined in these complaints, and added many sharp reflections on the king's ingratitude. His whole revenue, indeed, would not have sufficed to reward them all in proportion to their own consciousness of desert. For to every distressed gentleman who had fought under Rupert or Derby, his own services seemed eminently meritorious, and his own sufferings eminently severe. Every one had flattered himself that, whatever became of the rest he should be largely recompensed for all that he had lost during the civil troubles, and that the restoration of the monarchy would be followed by the restoration of his own dilapidated fortunes. None of these expectants could restrain his indignation when he found that he was as poor under the king as he had been under the rump of the protector. The negligence and extravagance of the court excited the bitter indignation of these loyal veterans. They justly said that one-half of what His Majesty squandered on concubines and buffoons would gladden the hearts of hundreds of old cavaliers who, after cutting down their oaks and melting their plate to help his father, now wandered about in threadbare suits and did not know where to turn for a meal. At the same time a sudden fall of rents took place. The income of every landed proprietor was diminished by five shillings in the pound, The cry of agricultural distress rose from every shire in the kingdom, and for that distress the government was, as usual, held accountable. The gentry, compelled to retrench their expenses for a period, saw with indignation the increasing splendor and profusion of Whitehall, and were immovably fixed in the belief that the money which ought to have supported their households had, by some inexplicable process, gone to the favourites of the king." The minds of men were now in such a temper that every public act excited discontent. Charles had taken to wife Catherine, Princess of Portugal. The marriage was generally disliked, and the murmurs became loud when it appeared that the king was not likely to have any legitimate posterity. Dunkirk, won by Oliver from Spain, was sold to Louis the Fourteenth, King of France. This bargain excited general indignation. Englishmen were already beginning to observe with uneasiness the progress of the French power and to regard the house of Bourbon with the same feeling with which their grandfathers had regarded the house of Austria was it wise men asked at such a time to make any addition to the strength of a monarchy already too formidable dunkirk was moreover prized by the people not merely as a place of arms and as a key to the low countries but also as a trophy of English fellow. It was to the subjects of Charles what Calais had been to an early generation, and what the Rock of Gibraltar so manfully defended through disastrous and perilous years against the fleets and armies of a mighty coalition is to ourselves. The plea of economy might have had some weight if it had been urged by an economical government but it was notorious that the charges of Dunkirk fell far short of the sums which were wasted at court in vice and folly. It seemed insupportable that a sovereign, profuse beyond example in all that regarded his own pleasures, should be niggardly in all that regarded the safety and honour of the state. The public discontent was heightened when it was found that, while Dunkirk was abandoned on the plea of economy, the fortress of Tangier, which was part of the dower of Queen Catherine, was repaired and kept up at an enormous charge. That place was associated with no recollections gratifying to the national pride. It could in no way promote the national interests. It involved us in inglorious, unprofitable and interminable wars with the tribes of half-savage Muslims, and it was situated in a climate singularly unfavourable to the health and vigour of the English race. But the murmurs excited by these errors were faint, when compared with the clamours, which soon broke forth. The government engaged in war with the United Provinces. The House of Commons readily voted sums, unexampled in our history. Sums exceeding those which had supported the fleets and armies of Cromwell at the time when his power was the terror of all the world. But such was the extravagance, dishonesty, and incapacity of those who had succeeded to his authority that this liberality proved worse than useless. The sycophants of the court, ill qualified to contend against the great men who then directed the arms of Holland, against such statesmen as De Witt and such a commander as De Ruyter, made fortunes rapidly, while the sailors mutinied from very hunger, while the dockyards were unguarded, while their ships were leaky and without rigging. It was at length determined to abandon all schemes of offensive war, it soon appeared that even a defensive war was a task too hard for that administration. The Dutch fleet sailed up the Thames and burned the ships of war which lay at Chatham. It was said, on the very day of that great humiliation, the king feasted with the ladies of his seraglio and amused himself with hunting a moth about the supper-room. Then at length tardy justice was done to the memory of Oliver. Everywhere men magnified his valour, genius, and patriotism. Everywhere it was remembered how, when he ruled, all foreign powers had trembled at the name of England, how the state's general, now so haughty, had crouched at his feet, and how, when it was known that he was no more, Amsterdam was lighted up as for a great deliverance, and children ran along the canals, shouting for joy that the devil was dead. Even royalists exclaimed that the state could be saved only by calling the old soldiers of the Commonwealth to arms. Soon the capital began to feel the miseries of a blockade. Fuel was scarcely to be procured. Tulbury Fort, the place where Elizabeth had, with manly spirit, hurled foul scorn at Parma and Spain, was insulted by the invaders. The roar of foreign guns was heard for the first time by the citizens of London. In the council it was seriously proposed that, if the enemy advanced, the tower should be abandoned. Great multitudes of people assembled in the streets, crying out that England was bought and sold. The houses and carriages of the ministers were attacked by the populace, and it seemed likely that the government would have to deal at once with an invasion and with an insurrection. The extreme danger, it is true, soon passed by. A treaty was concluded, very different from the treaties which Oliver had been in the habit of signing, and the nation was once more at peace, but it was in a mood scarcely less fierce and sullen than in the days of shipmany. The discontent engendered by maladministration was heightened by calamities which the best administration could not have averted while the ignominious war with holland was raging london suffered two great disasters such as never in so short a space of time befell one city a pestilence surpassing in horror any that during three centuries had visited the island swept away in six months more than a hundred thousand human beings and scarcely had the dead cart ceased to go its rounds when a fire such as had not been known in europe since the conflagration of Rome under Nero laid in ruins the whole city, from the tower to the temple, and from the river to the Perlius of Smithfield. Had there been a general election, while the nation was smarting under so many disgraces and misfortunes, it is probable that the roundheads would have regained ascendancy in the state. But the parliament was still the cavalier parliament, chosen in the transport of loyalty which had followed the Restoration, Nevertheless, it soon became evident that no English legislature, however loyal, would now consent to be merely what the legislature had been under the Tudors. From the death of Elizabeth to the eve of the Civil War, the Puritans, who predominated in the representative body, had been constantly, by a dexterous, use of the power of the purse, encroaching on the province of the executive government. The gentlemen who after the restoration, filled the lower house, though they abhorred the Puritan name, were well pleased to inherit the fruit of the Puritan policy. They were indeed most willing to employ the power which they possessed in the state for the purpose of making their king mighty and honoured, both at home and abroad. But with the power itself they resolved not to part. The great English revolution of the seventeenth century, that is to say, The transfer of the supreme control of the executive administration from the Crown to the House of Commons was, through the whole long existence of this Parliament, proceeding noiselessly, but rapidly and steadily. Charles, kept poor by his follies and vices, wanted money. The Commons alone could legally grant him money. They could not be prevented from putting their own price on their grants. The price which they put on their grants was this that they should be allowed to interfere with every one of the king's prerogatives, to wring from him his consent to laws which he disliked, to break up cabinets, to dictate the course of foreign policy, and even to direct the administration of war. To the royal office and the royal person, they loudly and sincerely professed the strongest attachment. But to Clarendon they owed no allegiance, and they fell on him as furiously as their predecessors had fallen on Stratford. The minister's virtues and vices alike contributed to his ruin. He was the ostensible head of the administration, and was therefore held responsible even for those acts which he had strongly but vainly opposed in council. He was regarded by the Puritans, and by all who pitied them as an implacable bigot, a sick and loud with much more than loud's understanding. He had on all occasions maintained that the act of indemnity ought to be strictly observed, and this part of his conduct, though highly honourable to him, made him hateful to all those royalists who wished to repair their ruined fortunes by suing the roundheads for damages and messiny profits. The Presbyterians of Scotland attributed to him the downfall of their church. The Papists of Ireland attributed to him the loss of their lands. As father of the Duchess of York, he had an obvious motive for wishing that there might be a barren queen, and he was therefore suspected of having purposefully recommended one. The sale of Dunkirk was justly imputed to him. For the war with Holland he was, with less justice, held accountable. His hot temper, his arrogant deportment, the indelicate eagerness with which he grasped at riches... The ostentation with which he squandered them, his picture-gallery, filled with masterpieces of Van Dyck, which had once been the property of ruined cavaliers, his palace, which reared its long and stately front right opposite to the humbler residence of our kings, drew on him much-deserved, and some undeserved, censure. When the Dutch fleet was in the Thames, it was against the Chancellor that the rage of the populace was chiefly directed. His windows were broken, the trees of his garden were cut down, and a gibbet was set up before his door, but nowhere was he more detested than in the house of commons. He was unable to perceive that the time was fast approaching when that house, if it continued to exist at all, must be supreme in the state, when the management of that house would be the most important department of politics, and when... Without the help of the men possessing the ear of that house, it would be impossible to carry on the government. He obstinately persisted in considering the Parliament as a body in no respect, differing from the Parliament which had been sitting when, forty years before, he first began to study law at the temple. He did not wish to deprive the legislature of those powers which were inherent in it by the old constitution of the realm, but the new development of those powers, though a development natural, inevitable, and to be prevented only by utterly destroying the powers themselves, disgusted and alarmed him. Nothing would have induced him to put the great seal to a writ for raising money, or to give his voice in council for committing a member of parliament to the Tower, on account of words spoken in debate. But... When the Commons began to inquire in what manner the money voted for the war had been wasted, and to examine into the maladministration of the navy, he flamed with indignation. Such inquiry, according to him, was out of their province. He admitted that their house was a most loyal assembly, that it had done good service to the Crown, and that its intentions were excellent, but, both in public and in the closet, he, on every occasion, expressed his concern that gentlemen so sincerely attached to monarchy should unadvisedly encroach on the prerogative of the monarch widely as they differed in spirit from the members of the long parliament they yet he said imitated that parliament in meddling with matters which lay beyond the sphere of the estates of the realm and which were subject to the authority of the crown alone the country he maintained would never be well-governed till the Knights of Shires and the Burgesses were content to be what their predecessors had been in the days of Elizabeth. Or the plans which men more observant than himself, of the signs of that time proposed, for the purpose of maintaining a good understanding between the court and the commons, he disdainfully rejected as crude projects, inconsistent with the old polity of England. Towards the young orators, who were rising to distinction and authority in the lower house, his deportment was ungracious, and he succeeded in making them, with scarcely an exception, his deadly enemies. Indeed, one of his most serious faults was an inordinate contempt for youth, and this contempt was the more unjustifiable, because his own experience in English politics was by no means proportioned to his age. For so great a part of his life had been passed abroad, that he knew less of the world in which he found himself on his return than many who might have been his sons. For these reasons he was disliked by the commons. For very different reasons he was equally disliked by the court. His morals, as well as his politics, were those of an earlier generation. Even when he was a young law student, living much with men of wit and pleasure, his natural gravity and his religious principles had to a great extent preserved him from the contagion of fashionable debauchery, and he was by no means likely, in advanced years and in declining health, to turn libertine. On the vices of the young and gay, he looked with an aversion almost as bitter and contemptuous as that which he felt for the theological errors of the sectaries. He missed no opportunity of showing his scorn of the mimics, revellers, and courtesans who crowded the palace and the admonitions which he addressed to the king himself were very sharp, and, what Charles disliked still more, very long. Scarcely any voice was raised in favour of a minister, loaded with the double odium of faults which roused the fury of the people, and of virtues which annoyed and importuned the sovereign. Southampton was no more. Ormond performed the duties of friendship manfully and faithfully, but in vain. The Chancellor fell with a great ruin. The seal was taken from him, the commons impeached him, his head was not safe. He fled from the country, an act was passed which doomed him to perpetual exile, and those who had assailed and undermined him began to struggle for the fragments of his power. The sacrifice of Clarendon, in some degree, took off the edge of the public appetite for revenge. Yet was the anger excited by the profusion and negligence of the government, and by the miscarriages of the late war, by no means extinguished. The councillors of Charles, with the fate of the Chancellor before their eyes, were anxious for their own safety. They accordingly advised their master to soothe the irritation which prevailed both in the Parliament and throughout the country, and for that end to take a step which has no parallel in the history of the House of Stuart, and which was worthy of the prudence and magnanimity of Oliver, end of part four.